I had a music zine as a kid. It was called Punks, Punks, Punks. And I interviewed like Lars Fredrickson and mm. Ian MacKay and uh, some of my other like musical heroes. Yeah. And then I had to go to college. Well, I guess my parents wanted me to go to college. And I had said, well, I like making a zine and interviewing people. So maybe journalism. It wasn't that well thought out of a plan. I didn't know very much about the industry at the time. Maybe I would have chose something else if I would have saw the general trajectory. But yeah, then I got a job as the music editor of SF Weekly. I was doing Hard Times and that simultaneously. And then Hard Times kept getting more and more popular. And I decided fuck it, I'm just going to do that full time. How seriously were you taking it from the outset? I have this belief that when you launch things, you should take them as seriously as possible. So I like spent a lot of time, actually coded the website myself at first, not like anything major. I hired a graphic designer who I really liked to make a logo that I really thought was good. And I spent time, I had like a 30 days worth of content kind of lined up, ready to go. Um, I wanted it to feel real and consistent. And I know it sounds like a silly thing, but... I decided, of course, to make it actually thehardtimes.net, not just like wordpress.thehardtimes.com or whatever, which a lot of people do. They think, oh, I'll grow naturally from wherever I'm going to start. I decided to try to make it feel powerful from the beginning. I did not think that it was going to be this popular. I thought it was going to be something that some of my punk friends would read and then ultimately would probably get me beat up <laughs> and that would be it. What's the source of animosity there? Well, just making fun of so I bands. Grew up, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the punk scene, and there's yeah. just kind of a lot of violence in general, you sure. know. So there's when I was involved with music, I was involved in a lot of like just fist fights because someone pushes someone too hard, or whatever happens, happens. Someone there are like a lot of funny punk bands, but there are a lot of punk bands with just absolutely zero sense of humor, especially in the hardcore scene. Yeah, so I played in a band called Zero Progress, and we started as a normal band, and then halfway through, I decided I was just going to lose my mind and turn into a bad guy pro wrestling character like kind of inspired by like rick flair and scott steiner and so mm -hmm. pretty much the idea was to aggravate the crowd and start fights it was a, <laughs> a time in my life where i felt like i just wanted to cause trouble um but i was very inspired by like fear and a lot of the other old hardcore bands that would like literally get in fights with the crowd and like andy kaufman and his uh wrestling career mm -hmm. which i thought was so funny so yeah it was i thought that when i started the website that people would take it the wrong way even though it was done lovingly it was done because i loved the punk scene but i thought that the comedy would rub them the wrong way and that they would beat me up that's actually why my name was on the website originally you must have anticipated early on that it was going to be relatively niche yeah i mean i literally thought it was just going to be yeah my zine i actually had a website for my zine punks punks punks.com and you know it was on a good day there was 100 people reading the mm -hmm. i mean that would be actually an extraordinary day it was like on a good month there's a couple hundred people. Now, the hard times, I think in the first week, we had over a million readers. How does that happen? So it's really interesting. We launched at a very interesting time in, in the publishing industry where Facebook and Google, the duopoly of like, I don't know, that's how you pronounce that word. I always read it. I don't say it. They were, that's what podcasts are for, for <laughs> saying words aloud for the first time. <laughs> they were controlling all the ads. So uh, actually having a popular website wasn't that much of a financial benefit. But they also, Facebook was showing content. If you had good content and you put it out there and people liked it, we would put up a single post that took us an hour to write or whatever. And it'd just be like a niche joke. And punks and hardcore kids liked it so much, they would share it. And Facebook would show it to every one of their friends on their feed. So we would. it was very common that one of our posts, we'd post it at 8 a.m. And by noon, it had a million impressions on Facebook. There was just no choke to the algorithm. It just, if we put out good content, they would show it to everyone. And so it really grows, grew super organically on Facebook primarily. I mean, organically, I get, and, and sort of, you know, being like tapped into Facebook's algorithm, I get, but, but a week, even by those standards, yeah. that's completely insane. Yeah, no, it was, you know, I say that, but, you know, maybe I should go back and double check that it was truly a sure. week. It felt like a week. I'll, it, I'll say that. It was a success out of the gate. Right out of the gate, 
And, you know, our first month was millions of people and we never yeah. dipped from there until you know about this. Facebook changed their algorithms sure. to friends and family. We lost 70% of our traffic yeah. overnight. So we had to do a whole bunch of work. And now we're back to where we used to be. I wonder if the problem with people launching publications in general is just going too broad. Oh, I think that is, I think that's a big thing. Not only is it too broad, so you don't get like that diehard fan base, but also you realize very quickly that you can't, you don't have the resources or manpower to uh, cover this topic that you chose. You're not certainly not going to compete with like a pitchfork or the onion. Absolutely. What it compete. is. When I was, I was a journalism student. And I was thinking in my room about the media landscape in general. And I saw that there was like the New York Times and then I was writing for Vice. And I thought of what Vice was. This is back when the New York Times and a lot of other people were writing articles about how like cool and hip and different Vice were. Do you remember those articles? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I remember when Vice was a magazine and they used right. to make fun of fat people's butts. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I thought about how Vice was this alternative to this like tried and true legacy organization. And then I thought about The Onion and how there wasn't – that didn't really exist. It was like the onion and there ever there wasn't an alternative. There wasn't an alternative. There wasn't like a younger, hipper subculture version of it. And uh, their every man was a guy who I wasn't. So it was you had a family and a wife and a lawn and a white picket fence, a car, a job. And I was just going to shows every weekend when I was a college student and I was at band practice. I wasn't at my nine to five job. And I thought about maybe there could be a vice version of the onion a lot of people interpret hard times as the punk version of the onion which is of course it has its punk root but the true first notion i had of it was it was going to be the vice version of the onion there are a lot of humor sites out there there are a lot of people trying to do that and certainly when the onion came along everyone was trying to do it in that vein but humor is an incredibly difficult thing to get right yeah I, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we get it wrong all the time. There's thousands and thousands of ideas that we have for what every is, one that we run. Getting it wrong just means that it doesn't go to press. Well, sometimes it gets depressed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, no, it's perfect, right? But I think that we have a team that has like that DIY punk spirit, and we're all very excited about putting in the time to make it right. If only just because we want to be proud of it and we all love the project. It's got a very communal spirit to yeah. it, our team. But yeah, it humor can be particularly difficult and there's a lot of sites that kind of flop i think the tone is very important creating a, a stable voice a lot of humor sites pop up and their voice is all over the place mm -hmm. as they they flop back and forth we've actually created a couple comedy projects that um flopped we created one called truth bang that was supposed to be a conspiracy theory satire site so we created like this conspiracy theorist it feels like the iron is hot for that one right now that's what i thought it was right when it was coming out that trump was trump was on infowars okay and we really thought that we had the timing right so this is really the lead up to the election but what what happened was no one wanted to share the articles cuz the articles were fucking lunacy yeah and people weren't so sure if you shared it if your friends would think you know everyone there's always that percentage of people who take satire wrong it's interesting you bring that up because i think that there's a line right now in the whole like you know the like fake news contingent mm -hmm. of satire sites that are purposefully wrong that are spreading lies and kind of passing things off as satire yeah it's bullshit the worst one is uh i think they're called empire news or something okay. it's just there's some people who just it's you know hillary clinton died yeah. <laughs> and then that's your satire. Yeah. And then it's just like yeah. all, all the facts in the article are just like, there's no satirical subtext. There's no message. There's no something there. It's yeah. just, hey, we tricked people. It's just being neat. Hard times goes very, very purposefully into a space where you're not supposed to be tricked. Just mathematically, some people always get tricked, but our articles are supposed to have like a message and a subtext that it's supposed to, re you're supposed to relate to it based on your experiences, not just be like, oh, I actually did think that Hillary Clinton was dead, and it's, it's not really that exciting to do that. I also feel like those people who build those brands, they don't build any loyalty. All they do is get 
someone's grandma off of Facebook to click on their website sure. for 12 seconds and then leave. We go and we do music festivals and people run up to us and show us their hard times tattoos. And that's like a loyalty that they, you know, because we're not just tricking people. We're giving them something. It's got to be a mind fuck the first time you see somebody with a tattoo of your website. It was crazy. Yeah, he was from Australia too. Uh, there's a lot of hard times tattoos out there. There was one of the craziest things was I went to Japan and I was at a wrestling event. Uh-huh. And this is so I took a 12 hour plane and then sure. bullet train for three hours, a bus for an hour, then a taxi. And I'm in this like small town. Well, I landed in Tokyo yeah. and I took a bullet train to, I think this show was in Osaka. Osaka. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so pretty much I'm a long way from sure. home is the point. The fact that you don't remember the city is like, is a good sign that I you're pretty th- brain dead at that point. I did a thing that I like, I tr- kind of backpacked around there for like 18 days or something like that. Yeah. So it all blurs together a bit, but I was a very long way from home. I was staying in a hostel and I, was at this wrestling event and uh, there's probably 500 people there. It's like deathmatch wrestling. And across the event, I saw one other white guy and it seemed like at the intermission, he came up to me because he thought this guy can't talk to anyone, you know, because yeah. no, no one is speaking English. I got to talk to him a little bit and he asked me what I did. I told him I ran the hard times and he went, I fucking love the hard yeah. times. Are you serious? Yeah. And then he started rattling off headlines to me and I thought, man. This is a long way from my bedroom where I write these articles for someone to connect to it like that. And my older brother who helped me with the website, he went to England and he saw some street punks with studded jackets and stuff. And his girlfriend was like, do you think they know the hard times? He went up and asked them. They're like, it's our fucking favorite website. So it's really crazy to see how far it's spread. It is a mindfuck. Do you think the internet has had a positive impact on punk culture in general? I don't know. Probably not. Yeah. You it's know, made it more accessible for a lot of people. Too accessible. Too accessible. I mean, I can't, I can't be, I can't talk too much about that because I'm a young guy and, you know, that's probably how I got involved with it. But there's an interesting part of subculture where it doesn't feel like subculture anymore. You know, I think in this weird way, I obviously, I like hard times, but I think hard you, times. You do enjoy your website that you run? Yeah. <laughs> I do feel a little bit, like if you really truly think about it. Hard Times success kind of shows that punk is a little bit past its point of importance. I don't know how much of that was actually the internet because it, it feels like that almost predates at least, you know, internet ubiquity, certainly. Like Green Day predates yeah. internet ubiquity. Yeah, it's interesting though, but I just mean that it's interesting that you can get so many people to understand these niche punk jokes. It feels very, very big, very, very mm. widespread. It's kind of like when I first started playing in a band, like the punk scene was just 20 kids in my hometown, I felt then we started playing in the bigger Bay Area, and then I understood there was more people. And then we went on tour, and it kind of continually widened my perspective. When I started this website, I just started to understand there's literally people all around the world who have their own interpretations of punk. And it's really, really, it's not really subculture. It's just everywhere. Someone sent me a message from Iran saying that they had uh, got around some firewall to yeah. read the hard times. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's subcultures within a larger subculture like you said there's a very i assume there's a very different punk scene in osaka than there is in san francisco well there is and there isn't it's it's interesting because they're into a lot of the very same things also japan's a little weird because i feel like a lot of japanese stuff is like based on american stuff sure so that they're just like we're gonna make this better and they do yeah exactly another interesting thing about the way the internet has changed punk culture is i feel like punk uh culture sometimes it's like a little bit of like a fortune teller about what mainstream left-wing stuff is going to be like in a couple of years. And the punk scene was just completely wrapped up in call-out culture very early on before it really hit the mainstream. Sure. Like it really predates Me Too and a lot of this other stuff. Certainly it was a more inclusive place for like LGBT mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, but it was uh, it was really interesting to see the entire punk scene kind of go through this 
really intense period where everyone was getting called out and then like this cool off period where people decided like maybe we need to like call them in and like the punk scene was trying to figure it out and then that's happening in mainstream culture now a lot of stuff like that i feel like if you go and you look at what punks are doing that's what mainstream left-wing people are going to be doing in a couple years as a site how do you remain a part of that culture yeah you know I feel like when we first started, we were doing jokes about being in DIY basements and seeing shows. And I think now what we're trying to do is to have like a DIY basement perspective, but cover culture at large. So we do a lot of other stuff that we wouldn't do in the start. We would, we do politics stuff. We do breaking news stuff. We have a video game vertical now that's really popular and accounts for a God, lot of our using traffic. the word verticals, yeah. which is like <laughs> one of the least punk words of all time. <laughs> what does breaking news mean in the context of your site? Well, you know, what it means is that even if it's not related to punk, if there's just something everyone's talking about, that we can cover it. So Bernie Sanders announced his candidacy. We did an article about that that day. You know, again, that, there's a story that everybody's going to be covering. And that's a story that the most seasoned political reporters in the world are going to be covering. What can a site like yours possibly bring to the table for that are you showing me the the I'm, articles i'm bringing it up because okay. you're, you're you're prepping it perfectly sure what could you possibly bring yeah. To the, yeah yeah let me tell you exactly what we Prove brought to yourself the table and damn then it you tell me what we did is we went and we are creating a character for bernie sanders where he's uh, like a punk guy. We've been working on this okay. for a little while, like especially Sanders. from the 2016 campaign. Let me find it really quick. I assume you have to start with this, a story that fits within the broader universe, the broader context of the site. So it can't be, it can't be any news story necessarily. Sometimes, I don't know. We've been trying yeah. to, we've been trying to push it. Sometimes it doesn't have a punk angle to it, you know, and our, we've, our reach has grown to the point where our supporters, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, you can be a punk, but then you're also interested in other things, you know? So, or you could, you, maybe you were used to be really into punk and then now you're into other things. So our reach has grown to the point where our fans are pretty forgiving. We can make a joke about Beyonce that's nothing to do with punk. And- with the news story, like, is there, are you trying to sort of walk the line between being funny and actually being informative, or is it more straight satire? Depends on the story. The one we did for Bernie Sanders was uh, Bernie Sanders to play classic 2016 presidential run in its entirety in on new tour. So the joke is that, you know, these bands get back together and do their old albums. So it's him doing all of his same material. It's interesting, though. It's like traditionally, I don't want to say traditionally, I'm talking like past like, you know, 10, 15 years, the rise of The Onion or The Daily Show when it was mm-hmm. still pretty funny. Mm-hmm. John Stewart's big talking line was, this is a comedy show, not a new show. Mm-hmm. It's important for him to draw that distinction. I feel like John Stewart had a lot of good ideas uh, yeah. that he stuck to. And one of the ideas that he really stuck to that, I grew up watching The Daily Show and John Stewart in particular. And Stephen Colbert, The Colbert Report was sure. one of my favorite shows yeah. ever. Was John Stewart was really, I feel, unafraid of hitting both sides. And I feel like the way that the country is right now, audiences don't like that as much. And they really, they really hope that you stick to one side and mm-hmm. the, the audience will actually turn on you. But John Stewart, maybe this is just me being nostalgic, but I felt like he did a really good job of going back and forth and mocking whoever he felt yeah, deserved mocking. It's one of those things I feel like, like I assume like you're probably on the left side of the, the political spectrum generally would be. Yeah. If I, I, grew up, to, I grew up in the punk scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the yeah, Bay, in the Bay area. area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I had to venture a guess, but you know, it just does seem like one of those things that's we're like, oh yeah, this looks I'm like, a constitutionalist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, no, but, but like, um, like take CNN. Like I watch CNN and I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, well, this is this is pretty middle of the road. If you call yourself a moderate, CNN is the station for you. But if you're a Fox News viewer, you're, it, it, this is like the most leftist hmm. propaganda that you, you've ever seen. John Stewart definitely leans pretty heavily left, I would mm-hmm. say, for the most part. He grew part. up with the punk scene, too. I don't know if you could say necessarily he skewers both sides equally. Not equally. 
I don't think I don't think both I think there's a false equivalence. I don't sure. think both sides deserve equal treatment. But I think nowadays people are truly afraid to go after both sides. I feel yeah. like they know that their audiences will reject them and they're afraid of what people might say about them. And I try really hard with hard times to not care about those things. You see a lot of people who do go after both sides, but that often means that they're sort of handling everything with kid gloves. Mm-hmm. S- SNL is the best example of that, right? Like SNL's trash. But it's like, oh, we make fun of Trump and it's just it's just like goofy, silly stuff, right? It's making fun of him for being orange. I feel like SNL's cold opens are these horrible parody news recaps mm-hmm. of the week with no satirical bite to them at all. Yeah. They have no message. Yeah. No, they're just walking you through what happened with someone like replaying it for you with the only notion sure. just being, and we can all agree we don't like Trump. It's really bad. Mashing it up with some other pop culture phenomenon that's happening at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I think The Onion is really great at, I think that they attack both sides. I think The Onion does a lot of things really, really well. I think that they don't have any bylines on their stuff. And I think uh, that helps them be more fearless. I have a lot of admiration for that publication in general. Do you guys do bylines at all? We do bylines. Yeah. So because you said you were anonymous when you started. I still am. I'm under the hard time staff with a couple other people, my co-founder. And so you never really quite know. I wonder what's more fearless, though. Isn't it kind of more fearless to put your name out there? Yeah, it is. It was kind of a thing that we did, my co-founder and I, really early on, that we were just the hard time staff. So it's a shared byline. There's some other people. And so what happens is sometimes people want to write something they don't want their name on it. So we'll throw it under hard time staff. So you can never really tell who wrote those ones. It's usually Bill Conway. <laughs> Just throw him under the bus. Was a full time freelancer at one point in time, and when I was building my publication, there was a lot of things that I wanted to change about the freelancing experience. I don't know how much you want to get into that, but it was like I love talking about freelancing. I really didn't like the experience of being a freelancer. So after having worked full time, I've been a freelancer twice and neither one was by choice yeah it's just yeah. sort of happenstance of working in publishing yeah yeah so i when we were when hard times became popular it became clear that we were going to take this seriously and spend you know i was going to make it my job i wanted to really rethink a lot of the ways that freelancers interact with their publications one of the things that i thought about right off the bat was i wanted the freelancers to really benefit in more ways than one especially because we are diy punk company so it's like not like we have these huge advertising contracts so it's not like we're paying people very well having people's bylines on there and then author pages um, helps them say hey i wrote this and go get a job elsewhere and i actively pursue relationships with people like the onion and say hey we have these talented writers do you want any like we don't try to maintain our talent we try to give it away but another thing i really didn't like about freelancing was i never felt very connected to the publication or what or understood what the publication was doing or what my editors really wanted. I felt very detached and that I was just pitching into this like black hole. And sometimes I got a response and sometimes I didn't. And so we decided to make it so that instead of pitching to an editor's inbox, you actually pitch to the entire website. So when you come up with a hard times idea, once you pass a a test, a headline test. You actually pitch to the entire staff and then everyone gets a say on whether or not they like this idea. And then the best ones, the staff received, the the best received ones from the staff go to an editorial meeting where they're discussed in depth and then there's some decisions made there. There's a lot of steps. Yes, there's there's a lot. But what ends up happening is you build some lifelong friendships and you network and yeah. you meet people. And I'm able to give all of our freelancers updates on what the company's goals are and what we're trying to do. We have, you know, parties and everyone gets together. And I feel like I really tried to help the freelance experience be better. Another thing that we did was, you probably know all about this, is you do not get paid in a very reasonable manner when you freelance. About a third of your job is hunting down paychecks. It's insane. So it's really, really bad. Almost no 
almost wherever you go. Some places are better than others. And so I had that problem as a freelancer. Then I was an editor at SF Weekly, and I had to mm. block off a whole day of my calendar just yeah. to do these invoices. And I was, it was killing me. And so at hard times, we actually created our own system, and it's a plug-in right into the content management system, so stuff like WordPress. And instead of a publish button, we have a publish and pay button, and you're able to just click names from a drop-down menu of our freelancers, type in how much they're owed for the article. As soon as you hit publish, they're notified, paid, and an invoice is generated to keep a perfect record for taxes. I don't know which one of these is technically the side hustle, but this other job came out of hard times. Yeah, it's just something that I needed. It's called Outvoice. I don't know if either one's a side hustle. I care about them both pretty deeply. You do have to delineate your time, though. Yeah. Well, I'm lucky. I have a really talented co-founder at Hard Times. His name is Bill Conway, and uh, he's a very talented individual. And when I need to go do Outvoice stuff, he's always able to hold the ship down. I trust him. You refer to it as a punk ethos of, um, mm-hmm. of the site. It's hard to become a legitimate businessman and say you're being punk and not feel completely silly about it. You're 100% right. Yeah. No, that's I think you don't even have to try to adopt the ethos when you're when you're later on in life. I think that being intimately involved with this scene just like shapes you. It's death by a thousand cuts, right? We make compromises. You have to just to, to live in the world. You're in Pacifica, but you're in the Bay Area. You have to make a living. There, there are certain things that maybe you wouldn't have done when you were 14 or 15 that you're doing yes. now. Yes. Oh, that's 100% true. Yeah. Particularly like with ads and stuff. Like yeah. if, I had, if I really had to boil it down, do I really want ads on the website? No. But um, I need to pay my people. Yeah, you have to grow up. You always have to grow up. When I was younger, I had a zine and I emailed Discord records and I just emailed like info at Discord. Yeah. And within just like... goes to Ian's house. With that, within like 20 minutes, Ian had got back to me yeah. and he said that he would uh, let me interview him. And he talked to me on the phone for like three hours. And I'm not exaggerating, I think the conversation like changed my life because yeah. he was such an inspiring character where he had built this business himself. And when I called him, he was like on his back, like in a warehouse, like fixing a, like a rack that held records. And I was just like, that's the type of man I want to be when I grow up is yeah. someone who cares about his company and works hard and makes it the way that he thinks that it should be. It sounds kind of cliche, but it's like there's a lot of musicians who aren't always thinking about what you should do, like what is the right move. And I feel like he often throughout his history of like his musical career was thinking about like what should we be doing here what could we change to be better even you know straight edge stuff but also like business practices and how record labels should be run and so that's how i wanted to run hard times i wanted to run it in a way where i don't like how publications do certain things so i want to change that for the better i want to make hard times a good experience for freelancers maybe it won't be the best experience ever i'm only one man i can't say hey i'm going to give you a fucking full-time job and health insurance or whatever but i can try harder and i can make it better I know that it's better than right now, right for hard times as a freelancer, you're paid in a more reasonable manner, meaning timeliness and and, uh, the amount of effort that goes in on your part, most publications in the world. So that's something that I'm proud of. Um, but I think it all comes from the punk scene. I think at a certain point, too, you have to sort of, and, and maybe this is going to you know, make it sound like a like solid corporate asshole, but you get to certain points in your life and you're like, I, I was holding on to that thing for completely arbitrary reasons mm-hmm. we had a uh, sean nelson from harvey danger on the show mm-hmm. i asked him just some question about regrets and he said his biggest regret was they went on late show with david letterman and paul schaefer offered to put the full band to like perform with them and they didn't do it because it wasn't punk enough and it wasn't cool enough mm-hmm. there are certain things that you you didn't do because it wasn't it wasn't a punk enough decision but mm-hmm. you were just it's just a completely mean. arbitrary decision making process sometimes. Yeah, so one of the one of the main things that happened in my life that helped me shed a lot of that stuff 
First, I'll say one thing. I think yeah. one of the main points of hard times is to take the punk scene, hold it upside down, sure. and shake it, and see yeah, what yeah. falls loose. Yeah. What ideas are good and what ideas are just trash that a bunch of 14 year I mean, those, came up those with. arbitrary things, are, that's fodder. It's comedy gold, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's definitely a huge part of my life. But when I became the music editor at SF Weekly, I felt this huge weight of responsibility where all of a sudden I was in charge of deciding what deserved to be reviewed or covered for this entire city and thinking, I'm just like a punk kid. I only listen to like kind of a particular type of music. Mm -hmm. And I decided right off the bat, I'm going to go way out of my way to not cover punk and instead learn as much as possible and hire a bunch of freelance writers with in with a uh, with deep knowledge of these different subjects. And I ended up going to like, you know, the opera and the symphony and learning all these different things. And after that job, I felt like my musical taste was much better. I felt like my perspective was just like widened. And I've tried to do that a lot where when I grew up, I was kind of like an ignorant punk kid where I was like, even particular types of punk, I wouldn't listen to. You know what I mean? Yeah. I only liked like sure. fast 80s hardcore stuff. And I wouldn't listen to like the stuff from the 2000s with the breakdowns because I thought it was like, I don't know. But yeah, so I've, uh, as you grow up, you get rid of some of your ignorant ideas, I suppose. What was that first opera experience like? It was a lot of fun. Was You enjoyed yeah. it right right away? Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah. And then I also went and saw some jazz fusion. I saw a band called um, Skinny Puppy. Terrific. Know, Skinny Puppy. And yeah. I listened to them all They're the time. They're like industrial, aren't they, a little bit? A little bit. They have a, they have a lot of different types of albums. The one I was listening to is their one where they wrote it with an orchestra. I think it's called Sylvia. It's a really interesting album. It's actually kind of tragic when people grow up in the punk scene. There's this kind of funny thing where if you're super successful as a punk, meaning like if you like become like a punk icon yeah. too quickly and you never grow out of it and then you talk to those guys, they're always a little kooky because they've got these weird notions that are like, dude, everyone else gave up on that when they're 14. You know, what's going on there? It sounds like because of a lot of these things, you had a lot of good opportunities when you were doing the zine early on. I mean, you said, you know, Lars Fredrickson, like big dude in a big band. I mean, uh, when I was my like sixth grade yearbook photo. I'm wearing a, a leather, or I'm wearing a, a denim vest with yeah. punk patches on it or whatever. And right on my heart is uh, Lars Ferguson and the Bastards. I'm friends with Lars now. I get to like hang out with him, talk to him. He's a great guy. He's a big Hard Times fan. A lesson that I've learned over the years is that um, so many there, there are so many missed opportunities in life because we just don't have the wherewithal to ask somebody to do something. Mm -hmm. We assume it's impossible. Yeah. Sometimes you have to stand up and say, I want this. Or I want to do this, or I want things to change. It's weird. I think about that often too, about the things that could have been if you really pursued them. I mean, it's kind of weird. Like Lars and Ian, they both let me interview them for hours when they knew that there was only thirty people reading this print zine. You know, and you have to imagine how many times those guys get asked to do interviews. Right? It yeah. must be all the time. The same goddamn questions the over and over. Same question. I mean, because and, and yeah. this is no reflection on on you as an interview, but as a fourteen year old, yeah. You, no, you think everything you, is like, the most profound. Yeah. Tell me what's straight edge. You know, like, yeah. And they weren't even rude. They were just super generous with their yeah. time. And that left a big impact on me. And it also made me, it really did. Those interviews made me be like, I could be a journalist. I could interview people. Mm. And a part of it was, I already interviewed all my big punk heroes. So I'm not going to be nervous when I go to interview politicians or, you know, a cop or anything like that. Um, yeah. I mean, I couldn't recommend if you're interested in writing, starting a zine enough, I feel like it's a really beneficial, fun thing to do. I see them for sure. When certainly when I'm like in around the big cities, but it does feel like this feel like blogs have just completely swallowed it up. It's not really yeah. necessarily that different, right? I mean, it's just a different platform, and that might be maybe like us holding on to paper is 
potentially one of those kind of arbitrary things. I wanted hard times to be a section in my theme. That yeah. was the original idea. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought I started learning some journalism skills. I started taking like a news writing class in college and I thought, hey, I should mix comedy and punk news and yeah. I should just make this. As and then I eventually came up with the idea in college and I wrote a couple articles and, I, and then I showed it to some people and they're like, yeah, this isn't, no one's going to read this. You're going to get beat up. Like, don't worry. Like, you shouldn't do this. And I was really busy. And I was like, ah. Fuck it. And I actually didn't do it for a couple of years, but I had the article still. And then I got like a gust of energy yeah. and I decided to do it and it changed my life. So earlier when you're talking about like, you know, when you make these decisions to like stand up and say, I'm going to do something. I literally, the idea of hard times almost passed me by. You know, I had the articles on my computer. The, some of the articles got published. It's, it's very easy to set things up for failure mm -hmm. by thinking that it's something that no one's going to be interested in. And that's yeah. just, that inhibits yeah so much of what we do it's also i was talking to my friend ryan Matos. he played in a band uh ceremony and i was asking him ceremony became a very popular band i'm sure ryan would be upset if i even mentioned him in ceremony because for some reason he's weird about that I don't okay know why. i was asking him like was ceremony popular right off the bat and he was like yeah it was just like a fucking smash you know and i started asking more and more people that question because I played in a band where we toured the entire country, 30 days, you know, DIY tours. And we'd be like, hell yeah, we got 100 new sure. fans or whatever. And I started to realize more and more, like, that idea of, like, grinding away yeah. at, at these ideas, I don't think that works very often. I think when you go, <laughs> I think things either work pretty quick, you know, six months a year, so they catch on, or the world isn't ready for it or the world doesn't need it or there's not a spot in the market for it, whatever that is. And that's kind of the attitude we've taken with hard times where we have all these ideas for projects and we give them a go and we try our absolute best and yeah. we prepare for success. And if they don't work, we pull a plug and put them down like a sick dog. Grinding, that's, that's part of the punk thing, right? Yeah. Playing, to small, playing small shows yeah, and like we'll, we'll play anyone, sleeping on man. floors and like yeah. just le leading the, the, the shitty life. If it's something you're passionate about, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you keep doing? I it? mean, those tours were some of the best times of my life. No joke. Just the idea of being in a van with your best friends and traveling the country for the first time and eating new types of food and meeting people. It doesn't matter if you yeah. play to five people. It's really yeah. more about the experience of, of getting there. Um, but I, I've the hard times has really shown me like a little bit of oh fuck. I might I might have I had the personality where I might have been one of those guys who just tried to grind away at something that the world didn't want for thirty years. Sure. You know, and I just got lucky where yeah. I came up with something that hard times where people actually wanted it. And then I'm able to let that personality run wild and grind away on it and get actually interest back. You know, it used to be I would put in all my effort and then I would hear very little sure. back. And now I put in one ounce of effort and I hear you know, a crowd. These are the things that you that you need to do when you're young. You need, yeah. These are the things you need to do when you have the energy. These are the things you need to do when, like, you're you're at your shitty job, but mm -hmm. you still you're fine going home and freelancing and, mm -hmm. and working on something until mm -hmm. three in the morning. People stop doing it because, like, you can't sleep on floors. I think you that that actually uh, burning the candle on both ends until you find something that really works is one of the main advice that I give to people. People come to me and they're you know talk about running their own publications, and I say you have to get a day job like 40 hours a week and be working that and doing your other thing on the side until it's really ready to pop and you're, you're ready to like, you can pay yourself off of it. Uh, I did hard times. I, I lived a crazy life. I did, you know, I did an editing job in an alt weekly where everyone was overworked. So it's like sure. 12 hours days. And then I'd go home and work on hard times for six hours and then try to sleep or whatever and back at it, you know, but I felt like I needed to because hard times wasn't ready to support me and I needed to let it grow. It needed to be a side hustle for a very long time. There's also something special about it that, that maybe you lose to some degree 
when it, it isn't that thing that's just for you. And it isn't that thing that you're like, that you're necessarily just killing yourself in order to do. Well, some people like, like uh, the unrequited love. They like unrequited love back from their pro- project. Again, it's that thing that you do because, because you have to do. Mm-hmm. I talk to musicians, artists ab- about this all the time about, what happens when something becomes a job? Mm-hmm. Mix things from people. Some people still love what they do, but um, you know, I, I've been I've been a professional writer for a really long time, and and I, I like what I do. And there are days when it's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Well, I mean, my thing became a job, but it wasn't really the job that I thought it was going to be. So I spend most of my time working on ad deals, and we implemented header bidding on our website. You know, programmatic stuff, and uh, negotiating with native advertisers on. You know, revenue, you ever listen to the shares? words you say and just? I dude, I'm just all I care. All I care about is CPMs and fucking conversion rates, yeah. and so a lot stickiness. Of, a lot of people, exactly. A lot of people think, uh, oh, Matt rolls out of bed and he writes a a funny story, and then his bills get paid. It's it's not like that at all. I have to do a whole bunch of stuff that I wasn't really interested in. Now I find it interesting. Do you still I, I like get to it. write funny stories? I do, I do, and I'm in all the editorial meetings, and I get to shape all the funny yeah. stories, and I get to. Um, laugh with my friends and have a great time but the thing that makes that keeps the light on is you know the other stuff that i do Uh, you can't just do the unless you have some billionaire backer or something you can't just be like hey i'm going to create great content all right well what's like the economics of making that content a business gotta get the cook brothers involved (laughs) (laughs) throw money at anything start uh I don't know, start spreading. What are the Cook Brothers held into? Is like like smaller government or something? Like start spreading oh, yeah, some yeah, weird yeah. ideas. The podcast launches, you know, you said you said like as of the recording of this one, you've been doing it for uh, about about four weeks now, which is yeah. adorable. Uh, <laughs> the idea behind that is that somebody saying, Hey, we have to get into multimedia. We need to, you know, like diversify, or is it like, hey, just like we've got a good position. I, there's a lot of cool people I want to talk to. It'd be fun to do a podcast. Uh a little bit of both. Yeah. So really early on when hard times started getting popular, people started coming to us and saying, why don't you have a podcast? They started saying, we could book you a live tour all around the country of a podcast if you had one. You guys are big enough. And then Spotify came to us and they wanted to buy a podcast from us. And we, said, we don't even have podcasts. And they said, well, we wanted to be a Spotify exclusive. And we talked to them for a little bit. And then we kind of went down the whole path of, you said, you know, Bill had a podcast in the past. That's actually how we met was through a podcast. And I love interviewing musicians. And we said, why don't we do this but why don't we just do it how we want to do it and diy and we'll make it ourselves and we'll do our own podcast network and we'll sell ads for it we'll see if it works i mean i've been in in that position at a lot of places where it's like hey let's get more into video let's get more into podcasts and and, and the question is like how do we we have value we have like this certain value like people come to this read the stories and and how do you translate that into audio and i suspect that that's even more difficult being the fact that it's a, a humor site i mean yeah yeah you're not doing like the audio punk daily show yeah yeah so we thought about doing that and i was actually when we were in our deliberations about it i was actually thinking we had a couple cool satirical ideas our friend uh goodrich gavart he's a funny comedian he had come up with an idea for us that was like people imitating punk idols reading from their fake autobiographies like a chapter from their autobiography and there's a lot of really good ideas like that and we were fantastic (laughs) we were excited about some of those but we kind of looked around the podcast space and saw like what was most popular Mm -hmm. and we thought about how often people ask or think about who's behind the hard times or what's it like at the hard times and we thought that maybe a more conversational one would just land better and we just decided to call it the hard times podcast like to, to really try to just transfer it's like the guys who created the hard times now have a podcast like that's the pitch instead of like a kind of a a lofty satirical narrative 
I think maybe we could still pull that off. And that's part of the reason why we did the network was yeah. because we don't intend for this podcast to be our last one. But we've got a lot of really great feedback on this one. And we noticed that our numbers haven't dipped at all. I was really worried about that. I hate when you launch a project and like the first time 2000 people listen, and then the second time is 1200. Yeah. And then the third time is 300. That actually gets back to something you said before, which is this idea of like being a success right off the bat. And I like suspect that bands, you ask them if they were success right off the bat, they'll say yes, but your perception of what constitutes a success certainly shifts as you become more and more successful. Mm -hmm. Invariably, and this is particularly the case with bands, probably the case with publications and anything for the most part, but at a certain point, it starts trending down. All these indie bands are really in that spot right now because they're, you know, they're of a certain age. Um, You know, their fans are of a certain age. You know, they're like 30s, 40s. They have kids. Maybe they just don't want to go to shows as much. And they're, they're trying to kind of figure out how much of it is what they're doing how much of the fan is a fan base how much is the, is the fact that it's just like fucking impossible to make a living doing music anymore it's that point when things start to slow that's that's when it becomes really difficult to keep going so yeah so hard times started off popular and it's still popular today but that's because we believe really strongly in that whole evolve or die mentality where whenever we started to see it start to trend down we really we're really intensely analyze ourselves yeah. and we think about what are we doing wrong? What could we do, be doing better? What are our competitors doing that uh, is really successful? Um, what do people want from us? What are our most popular stories? Before I did this, when I was in college, I was really big into online poker. I like paid for some of my books and rent about that or went through that. So you were good at it. I was very good at it. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, one of the main things people don't understand about being good at poker is for every like hour that you play, there should be like another hour where you're actually studying and I had a program that recorded all of the hands that I played. And I'd go through and I'd try to find my biggest mistakes and fix them. They're called leaks in the poker terminology. We do the same thing at hard times where we understand, we try to understand where our missteps are and correct them constantly so that we don't see those downward trend lines. So part of that pitch meeting, part of this like multi-step process from an idea that's actually getting onto the website is part of the conversation you're having is, is this a thing that's going to be shared a lot? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because I came from the journalism world where, uh, you know, there's like that clear line, or at least you hope, between yeah. uh, publisher and yeah. editorial. Yeah. I'm the editor in chief and publisher, and my co-founder is the you know the true head of editorial as the managing editor. He also owns a stake in the business, and so we we analyze it and we say, is this going to be shared? Are people going to like us? Is are we going to face some sort of negative feedback? Are we going to lose an advertiser? We consider all those things. Um, we don't have some sort of purely ideological, like, if it's funny, we run it. We truly don't do that. We try to always go with what's funniest. There you go. That was Matt Saycom of The Hard Times. You can check them out at thehardtimes.net. You have almost certainly seen their stories over at uh, Facebook, Twitter, whatever social network you happen to frequent. He also co-hosts The Hard Times podcast with Bill Conway, his co-founder of the site. Thanks so much to Matt for taking the time to do that. Thanks to Mike for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or on Spotify and YouTube now. If you have any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL information. And that's about all we got for this week. So stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.